good evening. It's Monday night. It's the 7th of uh, September 2020. It is the waning hours of Labor Day. Tom Kearney here. We're live and in real time on WPTF as I am every night, Monday through Friday between 9 and 10. We try to bring you programs that edify and entertain you and at least once a year we take a closer look and we probably should do it more often at the, the status of labor in the United States. And if you're going to choose one day to do that, just one day, why not Labor Day? And uh, for the last, I'm guessing, eight to ten years, that person has been the gentleman who is now the head of the history department at uh, North Carolina State University, uh, whose specialty is labor and uh, public history. And he, he may or may not talk about either one of those tonight, but he has been our guest each Labor Day for, as I said, the last eight or ten years. And... Uh, He's going to kind of uh, well, do like do like what Dr. Walden does with regard to the economy, and that is update us on the situation with regard to labor on this uh, Labor Day 2020, uh, a date on which it may be more significant than other days because it is a political year. Uh, I'll let him address that. He's the he's the brains of this outfit. His name is David Sonderman. He is from Massachusetts, although I am proud to say that he is adopted North Carolina as his home, and as a professional North Carolinian, I have an appreciation for that. He's a Ph.D. from Yale, has published a couple of books on labor in Massachusetts and movement to the South, and um, has taken an interest in labor in North Carolina and frequently comments on that. And uh, so here he is, Dr. David Sonderman. Good, e- good evening, David. Great to be with you, Tom. I know we can't, unfortunately, be together in a room, but it's always glad to be with you on Labor Day. I really thank you for giving me the opportunity every year. Um, and I think Labor Day in the middle of a pandemic is obviously pretty unique, but worth talking about. Um, I think um, we can have a lot of talk about things like what makes for a so-called essential worker. Um, a lot of workers are talking the word union now. Um, although it's very hard to organize, both because of the pandemic and because the current administration in Washington is extremely hostile to workers trying to organize unions. Um, but, you know, workers are trying, and they have a lot of reasons to want union protection. Basic workplace safety is a huge issue now. So all that's on the table right now in the middle of this pandemic. I was reading a little bit, trying to prepare for your class tonight, and uh, uh, of course I've been here all along, although a good bit of the time, like most of our fellow citizens, I have been quarantined somewhere, and in some cases even doubly quarantined, so I really didn't quite know what was going on in the world. But uh, the the question of essential workers and the question of uh, workers who, while they may not be essential in the same sense, are part of, uh, of uh, big assembly lines. I'm, I'm thinking here of uh, meatpacking plants and places like that where people are, are close together and uh, the people who are their bosses have not chosen to, to cut them some slack, as a friend of mine would say, uh, yeah. keeping them so close together. That's the kind of thing that um, it seems like to me, being a little bit of a historian myself, that originally created the organized labor movement in the United States, and it has reappeared in, in another form because of the of the, the crisis in health, but it is there nevertheless. 
Yeah, I mean, meatpacking is a, a sort of ground zero. And I'll make two points. One is, long before we had this pandemic, meatpacking has always been an extremely onerous job. It's needless to say brutal and bloody. Um, if you work in a meatpacking plant now, the line speed runs fast. And in fact, under the Trump administration, the Department of Agriculture is letting line speeds run faster. And we have data from the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, that when line speeds run faster in packing plants, people develop, they either get carpal tunnel or they lose fingers, to put it bluntly. It's very dangerous, brutal work. And then, as you said, in a pandemic, people are packed close together on these lines. There's not a lot of social distancing. There's not a lot of physical barriers because the idea is to move those, those critters through the line as fast as possible. Um, and so in many areas of the country, places like Iowa and South Dakota, we saw enormous outbreaks. Um, and the other thing is, you know, ironically, as brutal as these jobs are, they don't pay very well. And so many of the people in these jobs are recent immigrants trying to get their foot in the door, trying to make a life for themselves and their families. So uh, meatpacking is just, uh, as I say, it's sort of all, all the challenges of today's workplace packed into one place, if you'll pardon the pun. Well, in, in so many cases, it seems like I was hearing that uh, fast food workers were demanding a minimum of $15 an hour simply Going to your job was unsafe. Just, just going there because of the conditions. Uh, if, if the uh, management did not uh, require wearing masks or did not try to keep the facilities keep the facilities clean, all those kind of things. I mean, I was recently in the hospital for three days, and I felt unsafe even there. Just the whole atmosphere had a bad vibe. If you know what I mean. Absolutely. Yeah. No. I mean, again, you're absolutely right. Many of the people we call essential workers, especially on the food industry side of the equation, the healthcare workers are also doing remarkable stuff, just under near combat conditions. My, my heart goes out to the, the nurses and the doctors. Um, but to be honest, they make more money. Uh, they're not, I mean, a lot of nurses are not super well paid, and certainly their aides aren't well paid, but you know, they make more than, than many of the people in the food service industry, whether they're working at a grocery store or a packing plant or a canning factory or something like that. Um, but those people are paid little, work all kinds of long hours, um, don't have a lot of protection, both from the general dangers of their job or from COVID. Um, and yet they're expected to just keep at it, keep at it, keep at it. Whatever may be said about all of this, inevitably uh, consumers expected to be able to go to the supermarket under some conditions and get what they need. I know Mrs. Kearney goes, and we, we hope she can bring home the goods, so to speak. Uh, but uh, the, uh, the, the, the question is, how, how much protection do the workers who have to go get? Because they're, they're, they're not necessarily always able to keep the distance that they're supposed to keep and, and the kind of thing that leads to the governor being involved in the, the question with the different businesses that cannot open it. It's, it is bound up with the whole question of can we have a successful economy? Yeah, no, absolutely. 
and and um, you know, I I, th- I I read a lot about the struggles in our own state, and um, you know, I, I my sense is, and I'm not an epidemiologist, I'm a historian, but I read a lot and I listen to doctors, to physicians, um, I trust science. Um, unfortunately, again, we don't have an administration that always does that. Um, but if people would be more careful about where they went, if people would wear their masks as, as often as possible, um, we might be able to open up more parts of the economy. But, you know, I, I will tell you, as near as I can see until we have a vaccine, you know, and my heart goes out to people, you know, like if, if someone runs a bar, it's their business. It's their livelihood. I mean, I feel bad. I honestly do. I mean, it's, they're not doing anything wrong running their business, but I don't know how you can open up a bar and pack it in with people and have them all getting drinking and getting happy and all singing and all. That's just a super spreader event. We're not going to be able to have, my wife has become a huge Carolina Hurricanes fan. I don't know when we're going to get to our next Hurricanes game. I'm not walking into a arena with 15,000 other people unless I know that I have a vaccine and most of them have. So, I mean, some things are just going to be extremely difficult to do in a viral pandemic. But others we probably could do. We could probably open up more of the state, but people are stubborn. They're just like, I refuse to wear a mask. Well, and apparently, they, uh, from something I read today, the, the state of New York, which is one of the last places you might expect it, has, has in, a, in a way gotten the advancement of the virus under control. Uh, yes, I read the same thing. Their infection rate is down below 1%. And considering how devastated they were back in March, I mean, there were a lot, well, what we're, I would argue what we're seeing in New York is what we're seeing, what we saw in parts of Italy in the spring and summer. They got hit really hard, and it was a wake-up call, and people realized, holy moly, this thing is for real, and they did what they needed to do. They locked down tight, and when they were allowed to open, they opened very slowly and social distance, and everyone wearing a mask. Um, I mean, this is what we're told to do by scientists, people who know. And uh, to defy, I just don't understand the people, you know, these people who fight masks, in my opinion, well, it's more than an opinion. I think there's evidence. It's not just opinion. They're, they're wrong on the science because simply we have the evidence. Like, if you don't wear a mask, you pass on infection. They're wrong when they claim it's, it's an infringement and illegal. They're wrong. I can tell them as a historian this I know. Almost every state has public health laws, and most of those laws were passed somewhere about a century ago when we had a lot of epidemics, including the flu epidemic of 1918. But we also, in other cities, we had things like diphtheria outbreaks, we had typhoid outbreaks, we had cholera outbreaks. Um, In the southern areas, we had malaria and yellow fever. I mean, so lots of cities and states passed strict public health laws that gave mayors and governors power we need to infringe on our liberties for a brief time in the name of public health. So we these people to, say, oh, it's illegal, quick, it's not illegal. David, David, we need to yeah. take a quick break here. Okay. But, but I will make reference to the fact that they, I have heard it said that sanitary engineers, and they're some of the people you're talking about there, and laws to back them up in their efforts, are, have saved more lives than all the doctors have saved because they, uh, well, they just stopped the, 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 
they stop the cholera, they stop the typhoid, they yeah, whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's let's stop for a minute, take a break, and come back. Maybe you can sort of give us a feel for uh, the the state of organized labor in the United States. I, I noticed that that, that you know, it's been it's been falling off since the 1950s or 60s, and as the state of industry has changed in America, and it's changed, but at the same time, there there is still a core. Sometimes they don't have bargaining uh, responsibility, but they do represent the interest of uh, workers who want to unite. And you talk about that a little bit when we come back. Sure, absolutely. Julie Tom Kearney has invited Dr. David Donderman, professor of history at North Carolina State University, and of whom one of his specialties is the teaching and the study of labor history. And we've asked him to come and visit with us tonight, as we have before, and we always enjoy it when he comes and we get updated at the very least as to the situation with, with regard to organized labor. And uh, David, uh, when I opened my first college textbook back in 1961, Things were a lot different in terms of organized labor and its position in the culture of America and in the economy of America than it is now. And maybe you could trace that down a little bit for us. Happy to do it. Um, although it's not a happy story, if you think <laughs> that we need unions in America, which I do strongly. Um, yeah, I mean, the organized labor um, hit its peak in the mid-1950s with about a third of all non-agricultural workers were organized, and it was slowly declining a little bit through about the mid-70s, and then it started to drop more steeply. Um, today, a little more than 10% of all workers are organized as opposed to 35%, and that is a huge difference. Now, I remind people, 10% of the workforce is still about 15, 16, 17 million people, so it's not exactly we can fit everybody in a bus or something. Um, but it's a smaller percentage of the labor force. Um, and um, I would argue it, it's meant to work. You know, there's all kinds of reasons why we have such tremendous inequality today. But the growth in that inequality, not coincidentally, uh, began around the 19, mid to late 1970s when organized labor started to decline because organized labor fights for things like better wages and better benefits safer working conditions. So um, people have been talking an awful lot about inequality now. People have talking an awful lot about how workers, you know, workers that we seem to come to appreciate now, grocery store workers and nursing assistants and our, our teachers um, aren't paid enough, and they're not. And there's all, again, there's a number of reasons why, but one is they're not organized nearly as much as they used to be. Um, so it's a huge factor. And I, I always remind people, in fact, I've even talked to business groups, and I've reminded them that workers are not just workers like they're a labor cost for you to fit into your accounting spreadsheet. So that's part of it. I understand that, people running a business. Um, but workers are also consumers. So if we don't pay workers a living wage, they can't consume the goods and services that we want to produce. You know, I'll give you the example. You're a, I don't know, you run a local restaurant. And you say, well, I don't want my, you know, waitresses and cooks to organize because they want me to pay them more. But, you know, what about all the other people in your town? If they're also unorganized and get low wages, how often can they come into your restaurant? Maybe it's better off if everyone makes a living wage. 
They might be able to feed their families, including taking them out every once in a while for a meal at your restaurant. Uh, people are always, they're always looking only to the end of their nose and not looking any further into the economy as a whole. So the decline of organized labor has been a huge factor in growing inequality, growing working poverty. I mean, we have, we have millions of people, you know, we often think, oh, people getting, well, we used to call food stamps. It's, it's supplemental nutrition, SNAP benefits. Oh, people who do that are lazy and they sit around and just get government benefits. The vast majority of people who get uh, nutritional assistance, housing assistance, the vast majority of people on Medicaid are not people out of work. Well, now a lot of people are out of work, but before the pandemic, let's put it this way. The majority were not out of work. They were the working poor. People who work at Walmart make such lousy wages that they often have to go and apply to Medicaid. So all of our tax dollars, in effect, subsidize Walmart to pay lousy wages because we pay for their employees' health insurance. And that stinks as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I'm willing to pay my taxes, but I don't want to pay taxes to so that the people who own the Walton family, who own Walmart, and, and are multi, multi, multi-billionaires can become more multi-billionaires. That, you know, that's corporate welfare is what that is. And we don't talk enough about that. David, I yeah. have been reading a book lately about Henry Ford, and it seems like he had one of the answers to this when he he pushed his theory about the assembly line and so on to the point where he decided he wanted to pay his workers a wage that would allow the, him them to buy one of his cars. Yeah, uh, although as often, you know, you know this too as a fellow student of history, <laughs> history is more complicated than it seems. Ford, that was one of Ford's arguments, and he did use it to help recruit workers. Because one of the challenges at the Ford Motor Plant was that the, the turnover rate was astronomically high. People had a hard time staying on the assembly line because it was so intense and exhausting. Um, but, um, but the other thing with Ford was um, not only a certain group of work, workers got what was called the bot excuse me, the $5 day, which was the big draw at the time and the one that Ford promoted. And the other thing was Ford had what he called his sociological department. Um, and that did two things. One was it did a lot of snooping into workers' personal lives. And if your personal lives didn't match what Mr. Ford wanted them to be, you didn't necessarily get the $5 day. And there was another side of the sociological department run by a guy named Harry Bennett, who was an ex-prize fighter, who literally would go around and bust, you know, wore, wore brass knuckles and would bust in people's faces if they tried to organize unions. Ford was one of the last major automakers to organize, and it didn't happen until 1941 with all the defense production. So uh, what I've tumbled on to is a little bit of what they call paternalism then. Yeah, but a kind of brutal side of paternalism. <laughs> In some ways. Where and I'll come? just add one little other tidbit about Ford that's not not so much on the labor side, but as you mentioned in your introduction, David, I also work in the in an area called public history. Which hold on for just getting... a second. Let's put this on the other side of the break here because we're okay. going to have our break. We will have okay. something to tease people about. Come back right after this. Five, one, five, 
Labor Day 2020. Tom Kearney here, live and in real time. Tomorrow night, uh, Dr. Mike Walden will be our guest to update us on the situation vis-a-vis the economy. Tonight, we're honoring Labor Day and the laborers of America, as Labor Day was supposed to do, by uh, discussing a little bit of the situation vis-a-vis organized labor in the United States and a little bit of the history of that with uh, Dr. David Sonderman, who is the uh, chairman of the history department at NC State and who's one of his specialties is labor history. Dr. Zonderman, my I will not probably get out alive if I don't mention at least the fact that my sister and I were talking this afternoon, and she's a retired school teacher, and she pointed out to me that while she belonged to an organized labor group when she was a school teacher, she did not have any bar- bargaining power. And that's I think, is probably the case in a lot of government worker situations, at least in the edu- field of education. Yes, um, and if you'll allow me, I'll give a very quick lesson in labor law because people get things confused. So here in North Carolina, you need to remember three different things. Um, Employee at will, right to work, or as union folk will say, right to work for less. And the third thing is called General Statute 9598. And people tend to confuse all these, so here's the quick lesson. An employee at will is um, actually a concept that goes all the way back to master-servant law in early modern England, in common law. It basically says, um, today, if you're an employee, if you work for somebody, and you do not have a contract, your boss can fire you for any reason or no reason as long as it's not something like he says, basically, I'm firing you because you're a woman or because you're African-American or because um, you didn't pay me, you know, $500 to keep your job, something like that. But a boss doesn't, he can just say there's no, you know, business is lousy or he can say you mobbed off yesterday, I'm sick and tired of it, you're fired. Um, So that's the first thing. And that's true of workers all over this country. In a number of European countries, workers have more work status and more work rights. It's much harder to fire them. You have to show what's called just cause. But in this country, unless unless you have something like a union contract or some other kind of contract, or unless you have a protection like I have with tenure, a tenure system for university faculty. So that's the first thing. The second thing is a right-to-work state. Not all states are right-to-work. But almost every state in the South, some states in the Southwest, and now, because of the Republican shift in the Midwest, states like Michigan, home of United Auto Workers, is a right-to-work state. Right-to-work laws come from a federal law called the Taft-Hartley Act, which was passed in 1947. And that says if a state wants it, so it's up to an individual state, They can pass a law that says, if you go to work at a company that has a union contract, you can get all the benefits of that union contract, but you don't have to pay your union dues. So it creates what we might, what unions call the free rider problem or the moocher problem. You know, basically someone who gets all the benefits and doesn't pay for it. The way I teach it to my students is I say, okay, you have a sorority. Some gal knocks on your door and says, hi, I want to join your sorority, and I want to have the nice bedroom, and I want to have all the food you eat and all the parties, but I don't want to pay sorority dues. 
probably most sororities would not welcome that person in their sorority. But in fact, in North Carolina, because of the right to work law, if you work in a place that has a union contract, you can get the benefits. It's called the duty of fair representation. So by law, the union has to represent you and give you the benefits of the contract, but you don't have to pay the dues. Now, some unions work real hard to keep their members, explain the benefits of the contract. In some contracts, workers have to pay a partial fee for the contract. But anyway, it's a way to discourage unions. Now, in North Carolina, we have a third law that's anti-labor, um, and we're only one of two states in the country with this kind of law. And that's the one that covers, like your sister, public school teachers. It covers me because I'm a public employee. I work for the state of North Carolina at North Carolina State University. So it is true. I can join a union. And, in fact, I belong to two different unions. Um, so and so the, the government cannot stop me from joining a union. I have a First Amendment right to free association. But in North Carolina, these, any union that represents public workers, and that city workers, state workers, county workers, whatever, cannot um, make a collectively bargained contract. It's illegal. That law was passed in 1959, and it's called General Statute 9598. And the courts have upheld it with what I think is an absurd decision, where they said, well, you can join a union, but a union doesn't have to have collective bargaining. Which kind of raised the question, why then have a union? I mean, we don't necessarily want to just put on pink tea parties. We're trying to bargain and get people to collect the bargaining rights. So I hope one day that the state will eliminate that law and allow public workers to have the same rights that private workers do. But all these laws work to make North Carolina one of the most hostile states to organized labor. And that's been true for decades and decades and decades. That history goes back more than 100 years, North Carolina has been a very hostile state for labor organizing. We have one of the lowest. Our unionization rate is about 3%, where the national rate is about 10 So it's very low in this state. But we have, we have a few unions, and they're very hardy and tough and scrappy. The president of the state AFL-CIO is Mary B. McMillan, who I think is a, an articulate, forceful advocate for working people. Um, you ever get a chance to hear her talk, I think you'll be very impressed. She's passionate. She's smart. She really cares about working people and the raw deal they're often getting. So, yes, your sister's right. She cannot, as a, all of our public school teachers cannot collectively bargain on any issue. So that's why class sizes are too big. That's why their salaries are lousy. The benefits aren't very good. It's why lots of teachers leave the profession because they get burnt out and they figure they can make more money doing something else. Uh, a lot of teachers take second jobs either in the evening or on the weekends or in the summer. I can't tell you how many times my wife and I have gone to a restaurant and had a lovely waiter or waitress, and we, we always like to chat with them, just, hi, how are you? And, you know, and many of them will say, well, this is my second job. What do you do? Oh, I'm a fourth-grade teacher. And it just breaks our hearts. We're like, these people shouldn't have to work second jobs. They should be home getting rest for the next day, teaching our children. But that's, that's how we value our teachers. Although I think a lot of teachers are getting valued more now that parents have been stuck at home trying to educate their children and realize just how hard that is. Um, so maybe we'll get some more reward for what we show our teachers appreciation. Oh, so that's my sermon. 
with the scram scrambling of the educational experience between the real and the virtual, I have a feeling that a lot of things are going to be refined and defined. Uh, has there been any move uh, um, in, in North Carolina or in the nation generally to organize essential workers who, uh, you know, who undergo exposure to disease and, and, and other things like that? Yes, an enormous amount. And I'll give you two examples. Um, one is right here in North Carolina. In fact, I <clears throat> excuse me. I talked with a reporter recently out in Asheville. About 1,500 nurses are trying to organize at a couple of the big hospitals out in Asheville. And the hospital is fighting them tooth and nail. Um, what they're doing now is a classic technique that, that employers use to try to undermine an organizing campaign. They're arguing, arguing over who is in the bargaining unit. And a bargaining unit is legally defined as all the people that have the right to vote for a union or not. So if you're a company that doesn't want a union, you try to do two things. One is you just stall. You keep arguing over the, the unit. And the other is you try to trim it. You either shrink it and try to eliminate workers that you think are more likely to vote for the union. Or in some cases, you actually try to expand it out to other groups of workers that you think will not be interested in the union to try to get a big negative vote. And again, if companies hire lawyers and consultants who look around their whole employee roster and try to figure out, should you, should you make a small bargaining unit, a big bargaining unit? Um, so that's the fight going on in Asheville. And the other is there's a union, a fairly good-sized union nationwide, called the United Food and Commercial Workers, the UFCW. And they represent, not surprisingly, people that work in packing houses, people that work in grocery stores. Um, so they've been uh, spending a lot of time both defending their own members and fighting to get them personal protective equipment, PPE, and they've also been trying to organize other workers, letting them know, you know, if you join our union, we're not only going to try to fight to get you a better paycheck, we're all about workplace safety. Um, and that's true in many, many, many unions. I mean, another quick example I'll give you is some folks may remember the Trump administration loves to talk about coal miners. And, in fact, the number of jobs in mining has not gone up in the last four years. In a couple of counties, it's gone up a tiny bit, but nationwide, no. Um, and it wasn't the Obama administration that killed coal. It was fracking. Natural gas killed coal. But among the mine workers that are left, only a small number are still in unionized mines. But perhaps not surprisingly, those mines have much better safety records. Again, people may or may not remember, several years ago we had a tragic mine disaster and about a dozen miners died in a mine collapse. There was a non-union mine that was notorious for violating safety rules. So workplace safety is a huge issue, and it's one that's not always appreciated, but, but many unions, many unions have a really good record on fighting on safety issues. I, I was going to ask you to comment on that, and yeah, you now already have uh, the the fact that it isn't always about money; it's about other things. And uh, recently, I got a book. Uh, I don't know exactly when it was written. I think recently, but published about the uh, the uh, uh, chicken factory in in Hamlet. And oh, it's a great book. Yeah. Uh, yes, the Hamlet Fire. The Hamlet Fire, which. 
uh, I mean, if you just took the the violations of rules there, and uh, if you were paying people a thousand dollars an hour, it still wouldn't be worth it. To, uh, yes, because it's a, it's of the a, violations it's of the rules. Incredible book. I recommend it to everybody listening. Bryant, B R Y A N T, Simon, S I M O N, and it's simply called The Hamlet Fire. I believe it's published by New Press, if I remember correctly. Um, he's a professor of history at Temple University in Philadelphia. I know Brian well, and I've, I've reviewed the book for the North Carolina Historical Review. Um, it's a very powerful and very original book. Uh, if people, I won't give it all away, but if you read the book, he he starts with the fire, but it's almost like a, a novel. It expands. And he takes you into the lives of the people who, who both lived and died. He takes you through the town of Hamlet. He takes you into the whole chicken processing business, into the whole way that people grow chickens and on contract farms. Um, what happens to these workers over time as they develop health problems, because both because of the work and because their wages are so low, they buy cheap food. Um, and cheap food is often not that good for you. You know, people say, oh, why don't these people eat more fruits and vegetables and yogurt and all that stuff? Well, all that costs more. Uh, my younger son is a uh, night manager in a pizza place. Um, he's one of these, you know, I mean, the good thing is he's had a job through the pandemic. Um, but he's often telling me he goes to the grocery store and we're, all, you know, we're always encouraging to eat well. And he says, I try, but my goodness, you know. That, the fruit is really, you know, he loves things like apples and strawberries, and he's like, they're expensive. And I'm like, and then I say, yeah, I understand. Um, you know, you, you need the budget. You need to think about buying, but it's hard. And there are people who make less money than he does um, who are trying to feed. You know, he's just feeding himself. What about when you're trying to feed a, two or three kids as well? Um, so, yeah, it's a great, great book. I recommend it highly. <laughs> Let's stop and take a break, and then we'll come with the last quarter of the program, and I guess we'll ask you to, to look through the fog and see what you think is the future of labor and uh, in, in whatever geographic uh, division you want to take, the state, uh, the, the, uh, the, the country, whatever. Happy to do it. David Zonderman, professor of history at North Carolina State University, is, is our guest tonight. It is Labor Day, and this is our effort to honor the, the, the concept and the reality of Labor Day in the United States. We'll be back. Live and in real time on a Monday night, Labor Day uh, 2020. And uh, we are taking a look at a little bit of the history of Labor Day and, and what indeed is going on in the world of organized labor these days. Dr. David Zonderman chairman of the history department. No, he's not chairman. He's the head of the history department. See how small I'm getting, Dr. Dr. Zonderman? Yes, there's actually a difference between them, but I won't, no, no, I won't don't bore you with all that. No, don't do that. Everyone but I, I know did, about um, inside administration. Uh, I'll be happy to tell them. <laughs> yeah, somebody slapped me on the hands with a ruler, figuratively speaking, one time. That's why I shouldn't have diverted the conversation. Is there anything left uh, about uh, the current state of labor in North Carolina, what you think could happen? Uh, because this uh, 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 business we're having with the, uh, the, the 
can't find the right word, the virus now, is going to change the world. And do you expect it's going to change it in any way that will maybe find some organization in, in, in organizations like organized labor when the, the thing that was supposed to be going on in, in, in other areas was not, in fact, going on, the organization? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's um, I think there's several potential very important factors. One is not surprisingly the upcoming election. If if there's a change in administration, the Democrats and Vice President Biden win. Um, the, the Democrats have, well, the, to put the matter bluntly, in recent years, the Republicans have been anti-union and the Democrats have been indifferent in many cases to unions. I think that's shifting back. I think there are a large number, particularly of younger Democrats, who are rediscovering that a strong organized labor movement is both good for working people and good for a progressive democratic, and I mean capital D, a progressive democratic party movement. It, if you are a progressive Democrat, it is in your interest to have a strong labor movement. Um, starting in the 80s and 90s, especially with sort of the Clinton so-called New Democrats, there was a lot more vague lip service to labor and not much real support. I think that's changing, and, and I would say as a labor historian, that's good for a whole bunch of reasons, both for workers themselves and if people believe in social justice broadly. Organized labor is much more, and that leads me to a second point, and that is organized labor itself. Most unions, certainly not all, but most, have become also more progressive and more committed to real social justice. Um, Fifty years ago, a lot of unions, especially in the building trades, often in manufacturing, were pretty hidebound. They were pale, male, and stale, i.e. old white men trying to preserve their privilege. Less so now, um, much less so. So that's, I think politics is important. I think unions changing is important. And as you said, the economy, you know, we don't know when we get to the other side of the pandemic what's going to sort of rebound and what's going to be permanently altered. Um, let's, let's and I think a lot of young workers are looking and saying, I hear there's something called a union, and maybe that's what I want at my job. So, David, let's stop right there now and say thank you. I'm going to have to invite you because you, you've clearly got another program in you, and uh, <laughs> we'd like to have you back. But thank you for being with us tonight, Dr. David Sonderman, head of the Always history department at NC State, talking about organized labor and its various uh, existences here on Labor Day 2020.